Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, November 1st, we are studying Joshua chapter 16, verse 1 through chapter 17, verse 18. Joshua gives the inheritance of land to the two tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. It's always good to be here. Pastor Ulmer, let's talk context. What should we know as we prepare to look at these two chapters in Joshua? Yeah, so here uh, in the book of Joshua, the conquest is underway. Uh, The lands are uh, being conquered. Uh, Today we have the allotment uh, given to the Josephites. Uh, If you'll remember that in The conquest and in the allotment, uh, Joseph kind of doesn't get his own allotment, but his sons do, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, In Joshua 16 and 17, we kind of get a very uh, broad overview of that allotment to each of the tribes. Uh, I think that in general, there's two two really big things to take care of that I'm sure that we're going to talk about here in this next hour. That's number one, that each of these tribes gets a proper allotment as was promised to them. And number two, uh, there's a note on each of them about uh, them not fulfilling their God-given duty to completely remove the Canaanites from the land, which is kind of a foreshadow of issues to come for uh, the Ephraimites, the Manassites, and for the Israelites as a whole. Yeah, we get a couple of those notes already, a bit of foreshadowing for what's coming in the book of Judges, if you keep reading straight through. Uh, just thinking about this text as a whole, Pastor Ulmer, we got two chapters. The reason is because these they go together. And we've been in this section of the, as one guest previously called it, the real estate portion of the book of Joshua, the allotment of land. And I've talked to previous guests about this, but I'd like to hear your thoughts as well. This is one of those sections where you're reading straight through the Bible and you come to it and you see all these names. You don't know where they are. You're not sure how to pronounce them. And you might want to skip it or skim it. And, well, if someone comes to you and says, Pastor Ulmer, I'm reading Joshua, I'm in chapter 16 and 17, and I just don't, I don't understand what it's there for, what, what good is it for Christians today, uh, how, how, do we, how do we keep these chapters from just becoming flyover sections of the Bible, boring sections of the Bible? Yeah, by, by random chance, you will not believe this, Pastor Apple, but in my own personal devotional life, I was reading through the book of Joshua even before I got the assignment for this section. And when I got to this, uh, as the, the previous pastor had said, I like that the real estate portion, I had never thought about it that way. 
I, I personally was really struggling with it because um, number one, this section of Joshua is long. It contains, like you said, a lot of places and cities that have weird names and have almost no bearing on my life as a uh, Christian who is living in the, the beautiful state of Texas in the year of 2022. But as I've been thinking about it and, and really studying on this text and talking with other brothers in Christ about uh, this text, how, how I've come to reconcile this is that all of these real estate passages, including this one, are, are kind of like a, a physical proof of God's faithfulness. As, as I see it, Joshua 16, 17, the allotment to the Ephraimites and the Manassites, as well as the allotments to the rest of the 12 tribes, are an actual kind of physical proof of God fulfilling his promise to um, Abraham and all of his descendants all the way starting in Genesis 12. Hmm. So basically... God promises Abraham that he he pack up his stuff and he go, and Abraham ends up in this land of Canaan, and God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and not only am I going to make you into a great nation, your descendants are going to live on this land right here uh, where I'm speaking to you. And of course, Abraham never gets to see this. Um, Abraham's children end up kind of exiled into Egypt. They spend 400 years living in Egypt in slavery. God frees them in the Exodus. They, they kind of go out to the land. They're, they're about to behold it. They send the 12 spies into the land. Of course, I think we've talked about this even on Sharper Iron, you and I, how the 12 spies go into the land. Uh, they come back. Two men give a good, uh, honest report and, and tell people, hey, go in faith into the land. Take it as God has promised you. Ten say, hey, this looks like way, way more than we can chew. And they convince the Israelites to, to not listen to God. Thus, kind of, you get the 40 years wandering in, in the wilderness and, and all that. But now they're on the other side of that 40 years. They've stepped into the land. Uh, they've taken it. And if any one uh, of the people of God, the Israelites and the, the church in the future were to doubt God's faithfulness, right here in Joshua is a kind of a record for, for all times written into scripture to say, no, God is faithful. And do you want to know how faithful he, he is? Here's every city, here's every territory, here's every land that God gave to Israel. All right, so we're reading a record of, of God's faithfulness. And, and in that way, these place names that are difficult to pronounce become more than just flyover territory in the scriptures, but actually do matter to us. It's, I mean, it's think about our own lives as Christians and the ways in which God has been faithful to us. Maybe... Maybe here, try to, let's think about this, Pastor Ulmer. You know, you you may have a prayer list at your church where you pray for people by name every week, 
And and sometimes yes, people will call you and say, Pastor, rejoice with me. My prayer has been answered. It's it's not exactly the same thing because you know we don't always know how God's going to answer our prayers with a, a yes right now or perhaps a wait a little while. But but to see the faithfulness of God in my own life, you know, you can you can give the accounts of that happening in your congregation, and I can do it here. And you know, when you tell me, it it kind of makes me nod my head. It's like, well, that's nice. I don't really know those people, but at the same time. Mm-hmm we're a part of the same body of Christ. And so when I hear of the account of God's faithfulness to the people of God in Bishop, even though I don't know them and I, I may not be able to pronounce their names, I can still yep. rejoice with you over that and then be looking in my own life for the ways that God is faithful to the promises that he's made to me. And so the, the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel in the book of Joshua is an encouragement for us to look for God to be faithful to all promises he's made to us. Absolutely. And I think even one level deeper than that is this understanding that God's not only faithful, but we all share in the same promise, uh, the same faith that uh, these people did, which binds us together uh, as the one holy Christian apostolic church, even though the church per se uh, doesn't exist right here, uh, there's still the people of faith, people that we will see uh, in the resurrection as a part of that body that has uh, began with Adam and Eve and their children. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot, Pastor Elmer, because that I, you're right. It, it goes even deeper than that, that the account that we're hearing today in Joshua 16 and 17, this is actually our family history. This is, this is. is our story. We, too, are children of Abraham, not according to bloodline, but according to faith. And so, yeah, it, it is, it's not just a, a distant group of people that we happen to be reading about, but this is actually our, our family story. And that, that does, that draws the connection even closer. I, I, yeah, exactly. All right. So let's, let's work our way through this. We are reading Joshua 16 and 17 this morning. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then, going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ataroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the territory of lower Beth Horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar as far as Upper Beth Horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mikmethoth. Then on the east, the boundary turns around toward Tanath Shiloh and passes along beyond it on the east to Genoa. Then it goes down from Genoa to Ataroth and to Nara and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook Kana and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manassites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. 
Then the allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Osriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemedah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So, according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmethoth, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of En Tapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Kana. These cities to the south of the brook, among the cities of Manasseh, belong to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea, the land to the south being Ephraim's, and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Eblium and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Naphath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am numerous, a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. That's our text for today. That is Joshua 16, verse 1 through chapter 17, verse 18. Okay, Pastor Ulmer, let's, let's, start, let's start a little bit by just reminding ourselves who we're talking about, Ephraim, Manasseh, the tribes of Joseph. Can you give us a, a, just a little bit of a backstory on, on Joseph and the two sons and, and why we're dealing with two sons of Joseph rather than just Joseph? Give us some of that historical background before we start thinking about the land itself. Yeah, so, I mean, 
you you have this the situation where where Joseph, the son of Jacob, of course, going all the way back into the later part of Genesis, where Joseph is the firstborn son of Jacob and Rachel, his beloved wife, and um, Jacob ha- shows favoritism to to his beloved son gives them this coat of many colors. You have this uh, kind of fight tussle with his brothers where they end up throwing him in a cistern and taking his coat and covering it in blood and giving it to his father saying, Joseph has died and they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and then you get the whole story about Joseph in Egypt where he is uh, working in the house of one of Pharaoh's officials uh, this official's wife uh, finds Joseph pleasing to the eye, but Joseph does not uh, capitulate on her advances, so she tells a lie about him, has him thrown into prison. He gets out of prison through his uh, able to tell dreams. Uh, this ends up coming to Pharaoh, interpreting his dreams about the seven sheaves of wheat and the seven cows, how there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Joseph is given all authority in the land. Uh, They stock up. Uh, They're saved from uh, the famine in Egypt. Uh, Eventually, Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt and they end up moving there, uh, moving the entire Twelve sons and their father into the land of Goshen, where where they kind of set up shop and become a great nation. Um, here, uh, he Joseph gets married. He ends up having uh, two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, these two are allotted um, land. Joseph doesn't get any land, and um, the Levites don't get any land. They get the temple, uh, rounding kind of out the 12 uh, allotments of land for the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, very, very good, Pastor Omo. That's very helpful because, it, you know, sometimes you wonder, well, why didn't Joseph get land? Well, he did. He just got land through the two sons of his, Ephraim yeah. and Manasseh, and they're they're listed here. It, it strikes me as, you know, we've just heard about the allotment for Judah, and we talked about with that text that you know, Judah has priority as the one through whom the promised seed will come. And so he gets the longest chapter in terms of the allotment of land. Uh, so theologically, Judah stands with prominence here on the west side of the Jordan River. It strikes me that next in line, as Joshua gives them, is Ephraim. And when you think about the history of Israel going forward— when the kingdom is divided between the northern and the southern kingdom, Judah, of course, is the, the southern kingdom and stands prominently there. And among the tribes in the north, Ephraim stands most prominently there. It just it doesn't seem to be an accident that Ephraim comes next in the list of, of tribes that receive their allotment. Um, yeah, I think you, you have a situation here where... Uh, I think in a double way, you kind of have uh, the great reversal here, where with with Judah, you have this prominence, and if 
if my memory serves me correctly, Judah is the fourth oldest of the 12. That's right. Is that correct? Yeah, Judah yeah. is the fourth, fourth old, oldest of the 12. So you, you kind of expect everything to go through uh, the eldest son because that's how things normally work. But in a lot of ways, God does things uh, unexpected. He flips them on his head to kind of show uh, the Israelites and to show us who who are reading back on these things that everything that these people do is not by their power. It's not done by their wisdom. It's not by, done by their convention. It's done by God's. So he does things out of order to kind of make his point. Um, you even have this with the great patriarchs because you have uh, Isaac and Rebecca having twin sons, yet uh, Jacob is not the firstborn, if you remember. Uh, Esau is the firstborn, uh, the redhead coming out of the womb, and the grasper, the one who grabs Jacob, is kind of holding onto his heel, yet it's it's prophesied that uh, the promise is going to go through the younger, that the older will serve the younger, I I believe is, is how the Old Testament talks about it. So here you have uh, this this point of prominence, and as far as I understand kind of ancient Near Eastern and old texts, order matters a lot. Mm -hmm. So you have the primary importance in Judah. You'd expect the secondary importance uh, to come next, and that goes to Joseph. But even within that, you have this subsection where um, Ephraim is spoken about first. And believe it or not, uh, Ephraim is actually the younger of the two sons of Joseph. So you, you have this thing where you have layers of of this the the first shall be last and the last shall be first type motive motif. Hmm. Right. So in in the sense that when you think about Jacob's sons, Joseph being the favorite, maybe you even expect Joseph's sons to come first in the listing of the land. But it's not. It's Judah, who, as you pointed out, isn't the firstborn himself. You have to skip over, you have to skip over Reuben and Simeon and Levi before you get to Judah, who is the one through whom the promise comes. And as you pointed out, Ephraim is actually the younger of the two between Ephraim and Manasseh. It's, it it made me I don't know, chuckle a little bit, or it struck me that the beginning of chapter seventeen. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. And you mm-hmm. kind of scratch your head. Well. If he's the firstborn, why didn't he go first? And it's precisely for the reason that you're talking about. This is the Lord's way of working. And even when Jacob received Joseph's sons as his own in Genesis, Joseph tried to line them up such that the the right hand of his father would go on the head of Manasseh, the older, and the left hand would go on the hand of Ephraim, the younger. But Jacob crossed his hands over and Joseph even tried to correct his dad, but no, his dad refused and said, no, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's like Jacob kind of got it from what had happened in his own life, how yeah. the Lord had had worked through the younger and even through the, the trickster that Jacob was. And now Jacob is trying to teach his own son, Joseph, the same thing by, by reversing the way that Joseph would have had the blessing done. Yeah, and I mean, like we said in the introduction here, you kind of get a written record of it happening happening to kind of make it real for us who receive these things only by faith, by hearing the word of God. Mm. 
Yeah. Okay. So we've got we've got Ephraim and Manasseh. We've got their backstory. Let's talk about some of the the details. Any any details on this geography that we we really need to see, and Pastor Ulmer? It's, again, as I've, I've mentioned in previous episodes, it's always good to have a map by by you when you're reading these texts, so that you can get a, a good picture of what's being talked about. Because Joshua gives a fantastic picture if we know where these places and lines are, and so having a map is is helpful. Any any thoughts on some of the geography that we're hearing about in this section? Yeah, I, I think. There's a couple things I think I, I would like to say, and, and please fill it in because I am not going to claim to be uh, an expert on the geography of Israel. When I was reading through this stuff, I, I tried to bring up maps and understanding it. I think that one thing uh, that is clear is for the most part here, except by a couple uh, lines in passing, especially at the beginning of 17, we are only really talking about the allotment of Manasseh and Ephraim, which is west of the Jordan River. Right. Correct? Yes, I believe so. We, we need to recall that half the tribe of Manasseh has already received an allotment on the east side of the Jordan River. Yes, which we'll talk about in a second. So the, the vast majority of this is, is west of the Jordan River, and I'm trying to keep my geography right so I don't misspeak. If I do, please forgive me. Um, but I believe a couple important places that we're, we're talking about um, are, are going to be, of course, the, the Jordan River uh, being the eastern boundary. This land goes all the way over uh, to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and in here, we have places like uh, Shechem, um, uh, I believe that Jericho is uh, of relevance in this particular yep. a plot of land. Um, you have kind of the, the central hill country, uh, pardon my uh, central Texas reference there, the central hill country, uh, where Ephraim kind of hangs out. And that's kind of just on the other side of Judah. Right. Um, yeah, we're dealing with land that's north of, of Judah. And when you look at, again, if you look at a map, most of the land that's being described is bounded by the Mediterranean all the way then to the Jordan. There there are, I think, a few cities that are named that are on the east side that are talking about that first half tribe of Manasseh. But by and large, we're dealing with what's on the west side of the Jordan River. And it is a good chunk of land that we're talking about. When you, again, look at a, a map and you see this is yeah. kind of the, the heart of, of much of the land of Israel that we're talking about. So again, very strategic, important points of geography. And we're going to keep looking at this geography and make more theological points as well on the other side of the break you're listening to sharper iron on kfuo we're talking joshua 16 and 17 with pastor matt ulmer we'll be right back please stick around
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 1st. We're studying Joshua chapter 16, verse 1 through chapter 17, verse 18 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we were talking about just the general lay of the land. We've got the middle chunk of Israel here on the west side of the Jordan River, a good amount of land. In the Lutheran Study Bible, there's a nice map on page 365 if you want to check that out to see the land that we're talking about. You mentioned some of the important cities that are a part of this. Jericho and Shechem both figure largely at various points in the narrative of the Old Testament. There are some details within this text beyond just the place names and boundary lines that are being drawn that are very significant. One of those comes in verse 10 in chapter 16, and then something similar comes in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 17. Both for the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, there is mention made that they didn't drive out Canaanites in certain places. And this is a bit of a foreshadow, perhaps. This is something that uh, the Lord had other things in mind. So let's talk a lot about those, those failures to drive out Canaanites in certain places. Yeah. So I, I don't know in your, in your experience of being a, a parish pastor and doing Bible studies and talking about the conquest, if, if your people have ever uh, brought up kind of the command of God to, to wipe out the Canaanites uh, when they were in the conquest. For anybody who's listening, uh, that's really going to be in Deuteronomy 20, uh, where, where these commands come up. Um, Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18, he very, very specifically says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God has given you as inheritance. Do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, here's the kicker. The next verse is, otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So God, in, in giving them the land, he, he instructs the Israelites that when they come in, all of the, the tribes and the peoples that kind of lived in the hinterlands outside of the promised land, they're only, they only required to, to kill and destroy them if they don't let them pass through. Am I correct on that, Pastor Apple? There are some who live farther away that they are allowed to yeah. make peace with, but those there in the land, as Deuteronomy says, they are to destroy completely. The idea is to devote them to destruction. Yeah. Yeah. So 
these these outer lands that are not part of the promised land, uh, as long as the people let them pass through, they're allowed to make peace with them. Of course, in in the conquest, some of these people they don't uh, make deals with the Israelites, so uh, they get put to the edge of the sword, which is, I believe, how Israel gets a pretty good chunk of a land east of the Jordan River. Um, but in the promised land itself, in Canaan, God instructs them to, to put them all to destruction. It's not because God is some like bloodthirsty, cruel uh, God. The, the reason is simple. Uh, he knows that if, if the, the Israelites do not do as he says, those whom they leave alive are going to drag them into idolatry and that idolatry is ultimately going to be the people's downfall. Yeah, that's right. The Lord cares about idolatry. He doesn't want it. And this is always a matter of theology when he, he gives this command to do so. It's about preventing his people from being led astray into idol worship. And so when they don't drive out the Canaanites in these places, even though you do have the caveat that the Canaanites were forced to do forced labor, so they're they're not being dominated by the Canaanites. Clearly the Canaanites are subdued, but the fact that they're there still going about their idolatrous practices, at least even if it's just underneath the surface, there's this danger lurking there in Israel. And and these verses are, are notes of things to come that, as we see in the book of Judges, they blossom into to flowers that are not beautiful at all. Yeah, and, and I have it right here. It doesn't take very long. I mean, you have it in Judges 2.11, uh, right away in the book of Judges. And the people of Israel did what is evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Yeah. Boom. Uh, that influence is allowed to stay, the people uh, intermarry, uh, the household gods, the families become the household gods of uh, the Israelites, and and from there begins uh, the cycle of of their ultimate downfall. Mm, That's right, yeah, and there's a a note in the Lutheran Study Bible that I think is helpful on, on 1610, where it says the people of Israel failed to take up God on all his promises. And I think that's a, a great way of looking at yeah. this. You know, it's it's not just that, you know, the, that they just didn't do what God said, but they didn't receive the fullness of what God wanted to give them. He wanted to give them this land free and clear without any Canaanite idolatrous presence, and they failed to take him up on on the promise that he had freely given. Yeah, they they did. And and I, I said earlier in my own devotional life, I'd read through through. Uh, Joshua, and then I moved into Judges, and I'm currently in Judges right now, uh, personally. And one thing that kind of struck me was reading them through and seeing the connections about how this particular land that we're talking about now belonging to Ephraim and Manasseh, how it's affected very directly in the book of Judges, starting in like Judges 12. Um, this is this is when Jephthah. Uh, ends up judging Israel. Uh, Jephthah is a Gileadite, which Gilead is part of the eastern part of Manasseh. So I think you could say that he is a Manassite. Um, But in this particular uh, passage, you have um, the, the Ammonites coming in to try to reclaim that land. God allows them to do so because the people had fallen into idolatry. And then you get this character, Jephthah, who is kind of rejected by the people because 
while he, his father is a Gileadite, uh, his mother's a prostitute, if, if you can remember that from uh, the judge's study. And you have this interaction between, uh, apparently the, he's rejected because his mother's a prostitute, but he's a really good fighter. So when God gives the land into the hand of the Ammonites, the people beg Jephthah to fight for, him, for, for them. They end up repenting. Jephthah takes up the sword, defeats the Ammonites, but then he gets into a tussle with his with his brothers, the um, the Ephraimites, and you get you get this really strange um, battle uh, between Jephthah and the Ephraimites, where what forty some thousand of them end up getting killed, if I can remember. Yeah, forty two thousand of them get killed because they they do do battle, and this is the whole. How are we going to tell them apart? Uh, ask them to say shibboleth, yeah. and apparently the the Ephraimites could only say sibboleth, so they could tell them apart. Um, you you see you see the fruit of them not um, doing what God said, not holding God to His word, and and believing the promise hmm. directly in Judges eleven and twelve. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Well, so maybe the the connection then to Joshua sixteen and seventeen is that faithfulness right now, even in the small things, is important in one way or another. It is. The, the faithfulness now and the fruit that it bears, that that's worth paying attention to. I mean, you, know, you reap what you sow. Is I think Paul talks that way, and I believe it's Galatians 6. You know, the faithfulness now matters. And, and even in, you know, maybe it didn't seem like a big deal in, in Geezer. Well, yeah, there's a few Canaanites living here, and, and but there are slaves, and so, yeah, it, it'll be okay. Well, Faithfulness now matters, and you see the fruit later on, and that's that's a both a warning and an encouragement, I think, to us that that faithfulness now matters. I, I agree with you. I like the way that you frame that as both a warning and an encouragement, and and I really think about this in terms of not not just being a pastor living in the present, but as a as a husband and a father. Mm-hmm how our decisions of faithfulness now affect our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Kind of that, that theme uh, in, in the kind of submission of the Ten Commandments, uh, God's anger goes to the third and fourth generations of, of those who hate him, but his uh, mercy, his love endures for, for thousands who are faithful. What we do now affects how our children and grandchildren are going to believe and receive the faith. And I think this is, once again, as kind of the theme of our conversation, you kind of have written down in stone and in paper this account. And although the words aren't very many, they they can be very, very powerful for the person paying attention to the details. Uh, So Lord Lord have mercy upon us, grant us faithfulness is... A good Amen. prayer from these these chapters. There's a there's another interesting little account here, and it's 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 quite striking how these these little stories get sprinkled in here. We we heard about Aksa and o- Othniel in, in chapter 15, and and here in chapter 17, we get the daughters of Zelophehad. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it at least consistently every time. Yeah. So the the daughters of Zelophehad have a request, and this goes back into the book of Numbers, something that happened with Moses. It's right there in, in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6 in our text. Tell us a little bit about the daughters of Zelophehad. What's going on with their request? Yeah, so you got this uh, daughters of 
the Zalofa had in uh, Joshua 17, 3 for 6. And for the listeners this morning, if you want to go to the parallel text, it's uh, Numbers 27, 1 through 11. Um, apparently, uh, these daughters had spoken to and addressed uh, Moses uh, way, way, way back in time. You see, there was this uh, son of Gilead, this son of Manasseh, um, who, who didn't have any sons. And, and as such, uh, there was a fear that his name would be kind of written out of the book of Israel because he had no sons to receive a portion of inheritance. So you have these five daughters who do something that, that we might not see as, as crazy, but in a way, it, it really is crazy and not in a bad way. These people believe in the promise of God so much. These daughters believe in God's promise so much that they go to Moses and, and they ask him uh, for their father's sake to receive a part of the inheritance that his name might not get snuffed out of the book of Israel. And Moses goes and inquires of, of God. And the answer that comes back to these five daughters who went out in faith, uh, throwing God's promises back out at, at him was, a daughters, you get to receive an inheritance just like your brother's. So maybe maybe we wouldn't say that it's crazy, but if we can speak in the, the language of Luther's small catechism, this is children who with all boldness and confidence ask their dear father. Uh, right? I mean, the, yeah. the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, crazy is, is sir, I, I understand what you're saying, but this is this is the boldness of faith, the confidence of prayer that, that trusts in God's promises, even when in the eyes of the world— it may seem like, what are you doing? This is nuts. Who, who do you yeah. think you are? Well, when you've got the promise yeah, of God— completely out of order. That's right. But, but when you've got the promise of God, this is the boldness of prayer that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it's com- I, I, I will take your, your uh, change in language to boldness <laughs> as, as a very— Friendly amendment. Friendly amendment. I, I was using crazy kind of in a in kind of a modern lingo. I understand. Way like this. This is just something that that nobody would do, but but these women are so bold to ask because of God's overwhelming mercy, and and they get given to them what they what they ask for. They they receive a portion of the inheritance. They they keep their father's name alive, and not only that. In Numbers 27, this bold ask sets precedence for how the inheritance will go forth in Israel. This, this allows for the Israelites to, to pass on the father's things when, when there is no son to receive the quote-unquote normal inheritance path. Mm, yeah, so it's a, a very important little text. Talk talk a little it bit is. about how the daughters of Zelophehad serve as a model for boldness of prayer and what this kind of here combine them crazy confidence in the Lord's promises. What t- talk about how that you know still manifests itself in our lives as Christians, particularly in our lives of prayer. Yeah, uh, that 
maybe your maybe your question is, is just sparking in, in my own experience a little bit right now, having just preached on the last two uh, texts in Luke 18 that both have to deal with prayer. And I think the thing that um, I, as well as every Christian that I interact with, I would like them to understand is that God makes promises. He has asked us to ask him boldly, trusting that he will uh, give good gifts to his people um, and, and to just ask him and to ask. I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I mean, we ask him. Mm. Prayer, faith has an object. And, and when that object of our prayer and our faith is God, and when the content of that prayer is holding God to his promises, I, I truly believe that there is no, we don't even understand the extent to which God can and will uh, lavish his people with blessing. Well, and when you look at what his promises actually are, how much greater they so often are than what we would have otherwise asked for. And, you know, just look at the, the Lord's Prayer, in particular, the first three petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those prayers are so full of treasures of God that we might otherwise even forget to ask for. You know, so often, our prayers focus on the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. And it's certainly not wrong to pray for daily bread. God wants us to. That's why he commanded it. But it is also the fourth petition. And sometimes we forget about petitions one, two, three, and just how rich yeah. those gifts are. What an amazing thing to go before the king of the universe and ask for the holiness of his name and the coming of his kingdom and the will of his being done for us. That's that's no small thing to ask for. Yet we have that boldness in prayer to ask for those things and confidence that God is going to deliver those things all because he promised. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the point. If I had the opportunity to hammer home again and again and again, this is not because of how good we are at praying. This is not because we've done anything to buy it or merit it. He gives us these things only out of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy. He does this because, as the, these texts show us, God is faithful to his promises. Hold him to those promises, and you will receive what he, what he has promised to give. Mm, yeah, there's, there's one more part of this text that has a, another little story in it. It's the last part, verses 14 to 18, where the, the, piece, the people of Joseph— come to Joshua, and they, they want to know why they don't have as much land as it seems that, that they need. Uh, what What's going on there at the end of chapter 17? Yeah, so this is this is pretty good stuff. Uh, you, you have this very interesting uh, point in this text here where apparently the Josephites have become kind of unto themselves a great and mighty nation. You, you could say that in a way the Josephites are a fulfillment of kind of God's command and promise in Genesis 1 and like Genesis 9 that, um, and even Genesis 49 when, I believe jo Genesis 49 is when 
Jacob is blessing Joseph and his sons, mm. that that in this people um, they are to be fruitful and multiply, and God has been faithful in its promise. Does that make sense? Like they have expanded, they have grown into a mighty nation, uh, fulfilling what God has said. Yeah, yeah, no, and, I, and that's yet, great. Keep going. Yeah, and yet uh, you you have you have a God fulfilling His promise in the size of their nation, and B you have God fulfilling His promise to give them a land, and yet kind of in this weird uh, mix up of faith that they they don't understand or they forget or they're distracted by other things. Um, that what what they need, God will provide. They just have to like trust Him and ask Him. So you have this situ- this uh, kind of uh, passage here where these Josephites uh, complain to Joshua, and and Joshua kind of in his wisdom and his faithfulness um, tell tell them uh, what they need to hear that God has given them more. Uh, but they need to work for it. Yes, they're fill, and the, when he tells them that they have to work for it, that they have to go in, clear the forest, and, and chase out the inhabitants. Um, he, he, he tells them this, yet they, they don't kind of piece it together that how they are going to do that is by once again redoubling down in God's word and his faithfulness and that God's with them and that he will be the one who fights for them. And if they remain true to his word and their and true to their identity as his people, that he will uh, force them out and give them exactly what they are asking for. So you have this, this story here where um, God is faithful to them abundantly and maybe even super abundantly. They ask for more and Joshua tells them, more is there for you, trust God. So, I mean, maybe we can see these last verses of Joshua 17 as the positive side or the potential positive side of what we talked about earlier with verse with 16, verse 10, where the, the people of Ephraim there failed to receive the fullness of God's promises by not driving out the Canaanites from, from Gezer. Here, the entire tribe of Joseph, both, both Ephraim and Manasseh, are given the opportunity and the encouragement by Joshua go ahead and receive the fullness of God's promise. It's there for you. Live in faith and and go ahead and, and have it because it's yours. I mean, that's like the, the positive encouragement to go ahead and, and to live by faith and receive the fullness of what God has promised to his people. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. Well put. Yeah. Okay. So we we've got a lot of a lot of text here and a lot of encouragement. I think toward you know, as you started us out to understanding that God fulfills His promises. He keeps them even down to the what seems to be minute details to us of which towns and where boundaries lie. That that even down to those details, God keeps His promises, and because He makes those promises, we are are free to trust in Him and to receive the goodness of His gifts in their in their fullness. And and when we don't receive those, then then we're we're looking for bad fruit later on. So go ahead and receive the fulfillment of God's promises right now. These are some of the encouragements that we have from this text. We've got about 
three minutes on the morning, Pastor Ulmer. Help us to, to wrap this up and, and to receive the, the goodness that is ours in Christ from Joshua 16 and 17. Yeah, so, so brothers and sisters in Christ who have spent uh, this time with us this morning, please uh, hear this text and read uh, the rest of Joshua and the conquest as proof of God's faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants. And know that, that this is, is just a foretaste of the promises that God has made to his people and that he is faithful in fulfilling them. If you want any proof of this, read through the New Testament. Understand, especially like in the Gospel of Matthew, where, where Jesus Christ is the promised one born of, a, of the Virgin Mary in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, all of these words were according to the promise of God and given through the prophets, that everything that he did uh, was to fulfill what God had promised to his people, that he would save people from their sins. You and, and I and all who hear and believe this message are, are those who receive the gifts of God because of what Jesus has done. Uh, that we are upheld in the faith by his Holy Spirit. And what we need in these times is to be reminded that God loves us, that he fulfills his promises to us in Christ. All we need do uh, is hold into those promises and, and be faithful um, to the gifts that he has promised to give. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas helping us today with Joshua chapter 16, verse 1, through chapter 17, verse 18. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. You are more than welcome. It's always a privilege. God is faithful. He fulfills every one of his promises down to the very boundaries and cities that he promised to Abraham. Now he gives to his people, to Ephraim and Manasseh in chapters 16 and 17. He gave the promised allotments. And to you and to me, he fulfills his promises as well. Every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus Christ. These are promises that you and I can count on. We can bank on. God will fulfill them completely. And for that, we rejoice and we give thanks and we pray in great boldness, knowing that God will do what he has said. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, the allotment of land, the conquest, any of the book of Joshua, or your comments on the series, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to get your email. Even if you just want to let us know where you're listening from, we would love to get your correspondence. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.